0: All right, good to see everybody. We are uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and most of chapter 16 as we move through the book but today we're going to sort of do the big-picture view of that. I'm not going to read all 40 verses so uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it while we wait with the people of Israel in the land between. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us to the Ten Commandments as the gracious revelation of you and of us. You teach us that the law gives us the grace of rest. But it's hard for us to believe that. We are addicted to work. So as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us consider what it means to find rest for our souls. And so we pray, Speak through the words of Moses this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to know God more, and to see Jesus clearly, for in his name we pray, amen, and amen. All right, well, recently, uh, the elders voted on a bunch of new rules to help you keep the Sabbath rightly. I know, I was uh, out for three weeks, and this is what happens. What can you do? So one of those new rules is that church members can't take more than 1,999 steps on the Lord's Day without facing church discipline, because one more step, and that would represent a long trip, a no-no on the day that God set aside for rest. Another new rule says you can't carry your Bible to church anymore, since such heavy lifting would so closely resemble work. And they considered adding new rules requiring church discipline for those found guilty of such heinous activities on the Lord's Day, such as carrying a pen, lest you be tempted to write. Or carrying a needle, lest you be tempted to sew. Or helping the sick, but with non-life-threatening illnesses because, duh, it can wait till Monday. You get the picture. Thankfully, the elders voted down all of these new rules. Mostly because such an exercise in legalism would make you, the congregation, absolutely miserable. It would probably get them, the ruling elders, fired. Not the teaching elders, just the ruling elders. Because I was in the hospital and Frank was out sick with a fake cough. Uh, A bad cough, a bad cough. That's what I meant to say. However... I'm not actually making up any of those rules, though I did modernize a few of them. They're just a few among dozens of Sabbath laws that the Pharisees added to the law. And ironically, the Pharisees were the theological giants of the day, and yet in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter two, Jesus asked them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, He and those who were with them, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with them. He says, have you never read? In other words, don't you understand the scriptures? The Pharisees have been watching Jesus to see if he's going to break their rabbinic laws related to the Sabbath. And so they charge him with neglect of the law because they see his disciples on the Sabbath picking grain while walking through a field and eating the kernels to satisfy their hunger. And so Jesus points out that David and his band of brothers ate the showbread or the bread of the presence in the tabernacle while on the run from Saul in 1 Samuel 21. And so. They challenge him and he answers them and almost immediately after this challenge at the beginning of Mark 3, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand, another direct violation of the Sabbath laws. Of course, the Pharisees are infamous for coding the moral law of God with hundreds of man-made traditions. The idea was they are trying to build a fence around the law so you couldn't even get close to breaking it. And we get the idea from the New Testament that trying to obey all of these extra laws as a means of salvation was turning them into a miserable people. And it's no small wonder you can see that. Well, today, few of us would seek to follow a pharisaical model. The reality is this level of ministry uh, misery <laughs> Uh, is alive and well among those who misunderstand how the law and the gospel complement each other. Such people seek God's favor by misapplying God's law to force the acceptance of personal convictions, often banning certain modes of dress or music or movies or food and so on. And that becomes a system of expected norms to which they hold both themselves and other Christians. The great uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, the legalist slogan is you cannot be spiritual unless you're uncomfortable. All of which brings us to today's passage, Deuteronomy chapter 15 through chapter 16, verse 17. This passage is Moses' application of the fourth commandment. We find that commandment in Deuteronomy 5. And it says, this is the longest commandment, observe the, Sabbath, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, as we go through Deuteronomy 15 and 16, an application of Sabbath principles, you're gonna notice there's no mention of the Sabbath. Just like last week when Timo preached on the fifth commandment, and yes, we're doing them out of order, um, there was no mention of mothers and fathers because God's commandments are broadly applied. So while observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy includes, of course, an emphasis on rest and worship one day a week, it's about so much more than Sundays. It's about building a lifestyle of work and rest, and worship. And there is a ton to say on all three of those topics. But today I'm gonna focus in mostly on rest. Why did I choose rest? Well, as most of you know, three weeks ago I had a heart attack. And I've been dealing with that. Got a bunch of new meds. I'm going to the cardiac rehabilitation lab three times a week. Got continuing to lose weight, trying to eat healthy. And this week was my first full week back in the office and I noticed I'm getting tired earlier in the day. It's harder to get stuff done, which is frustrated. I've always prided myself on uh, being organized and getting stuff done. And in prepping for this sermon, I was reading an awful lot about the need for Sabbath and the need for rest. And they're not the same thing, although they are related. And I realized that I do neither Well, I don't rest well. And that actually, I think, is true for a number of you as well. Today, if you ask someone how they're doing, what are the top two answers? Busy. Tired. If you get fine, they're usually not being honest. Or, fine stands for freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. So let me ask, have you given the busy or tired answer this year? Have any of you done that? Anybody other than me? Oh, most of you. All right, a lot of hands there. Well, then you're not going to like the next part. I came across this quote the other day, and it just me cold. One author says, "The Chinese joined two characters to form a single pictograph for busyness: heart and killing. And I thought that was stunningly insightful. The heart is the place where the busy life exacts its steepest toll. And that's literally true, physically true, spiritually true. In my case, cardiologically true. I don't know if cardiologically is an actual word, but we're gonna go with it. Now, to be honest, there's lots of reasons for cardiac issues, age, weight, gender, family history, diet, stress. I could go on, it is a long list. But this insight, that busyness kills our hearts, is also true. And it's true in a lot of different ways. That noted minister, therapist, Wayne Mueller, uh, has written He says, I have visited the large offices of wealthy donors, the crowded rooms of social service agencies, and the small houses of the poorest families. Remarkably, within this mosaic, there is a universal refrain, I am so busy. It doesn't seem to matter if the people I speak with are doctors or daycare workers, shopkeepers or social workers, parents or teachers, nurses or lawyers, students or therapists, community activists or cooks. Whether they are Hispanic, Asian or Native American, Caucasian or black, the more their lives speed up, the more they feel hurt, frightened and isolated. Despite their good hearts and equally good intentions, their work in the world rarely feels light, pleasant or healing. Instead, as it all piles endlessly upon itself, the whole experience of being alive begins to melt into one enormous obligation. It becomes the standard greeting everywhere. I am so busy." I've been spending a lot of time in the psalm lately, and particularly in Psalm 23 has become uh, uh, pretty much my favorite psalm. And Psalm 23, verse 2 says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. And I thought about that, and if we don't choose to lie down, sometimes God makes us. And to some degree, that's what happened to me. He made me lie down. Don't recommend it. Now, as I said earlier, this is a long passage, 40 verses. has tons of detail in it. But it also has, and can get lost in the detail, it has some uh, significant Sabbath principles. So we're not going to get down in the weeds, so to speak, but we're going to look at a few verses and look at the big picture. And we're going to do it somewhat quickly. So let's start with the first Sabbath principle, and that's the need for sabbatical rest. That's the first blank if you uh, printed out your outline. Following along, chapter 15, verses 1 through 23, I'm only going to read, through the first half of verse 6. It says, At the end of every seven years you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today, for the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you. Now, these verses give added emphasis to two biblical issues which have already emerged in the book of Deuteronomy. God's concern for the individual and its compassion for the poor. Now you would think, because Deuteronomy has an overall appeal to the well-being of the whole community throughout the book, that the average Israelite uh, uh, might have been easily overlooked. Because we know, overall, the Lord is creating a people for himself. He told us that in Deuteronomy 14. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But yet that doesn't mean that individuals are disregarded or devalued. In God's sight, every single man, woman, or child, rich or poor, is of infinite worth, for everyone belongs to him, and everyone is made in the image of God. And so special care is taken to meet their needs. Moreover, although this book has a great deal to say about the well-being of God's people, it anticipates the needs of the destitute, the needy, the poor, however you want to phrase it, and the oppressed. Because a lot of times people are needy and poor because they've been oppressed. And scripture is remarkable for its realism. It certainly doesn't guarantee the material success of those people who put God first. Some of the holiest people in Christian history have encountered times of great hardship and oppression. And those who honor God readily will accept his priorities as their own. If he cares for the needy, so will they. God is concerned about disadvantaged people who can be found in the Israelite community, and the reality is can be found in almost any community. And here in Deuteronomy 15, three groups of people are singled out for special mention. Debtors, the poor, and servants. And the idea is, if the command for rest is given to you, it should also be given to these people. The command for rest is not just for the privileged people. It is for everyone. And so such people are to benefit from a year of release. Verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. It's commonly called the sabbatical year. And basically because of this verse that most people that give sabbaticals, uh, academics, churches, so on, do it every seven years. And it guarantees them um, practical help and relief. All debts are canceled. And we see in this chapter, there's four reasons. It takes a little bit to pick them out, but they're there. Four reasons why creditors are to be generous to their fellow Israelites. First is they have to remember God's kindness. All creditors are debtors to God, are debtors in God's sight. Without his generous gifts, they too would be in poverty. They only have material Possessions, because the Lord has blessed them in the land which he's given them. It says that in verse 4. If he has dealt graciously with them, then they must not be unkind to others. Second, they must obey God's word. It's not a request. It's a command. Creditors are told, verse 5, they must strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. Essentially, he's saying the Lord has kept his part of the covenant by giving them what he's agreed, he's blessed them, he's giving them the promised land, and so when they arrive in it, they have to keep their part by doing what he said. Their obedience, this is amazing, could banish all poverty within the community, verse 4. If they follow the Lord and are obedient, there will be no poor among you. Now later on he's going to say the poor are always with you. And it's not a contradiction, it's because they're not always obedient. They're not always doing what they're supposed to do. But God's anticipating a time here when the people of God care for one another. Third, they have to trust God, trust God's promise. Obedience to the man calls for, it's an act of faith. On the part of the creditor. Because during that year he stops collecting debts. How can he be sure that his own needs are going to be met? Well, the promise is clear in verse 6 he says, For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised. And so for the creditor as well, it's a time whether well, you're going to trust God or not. He said he's going to take care of you, he's going to bless you. Now there's a whole lot more that can be said there, but the last one is they have to love God's people. Relationships are important within the people of Israel and within the church. A creditor must not regard his fellow Israelite as a tiresome debtor, as an expensive aggravation in his business affairs. Although the debtor owes money, he must not be made into an enemy. The debtor is a fellow Israelite and even more a brother, it says that in verses 2 and 3. Creditor and debtor alike are joint members of God's family with one father caring for them all. So these laws are a further reminder of the truth that the Lord deserves the best and they testify the importance of family life and of worship. And of course, during their worship, a sacrificial meal is to be eaten in the presence of the Lord by the entire household in gratitude for God's many blessings. And that's what the verses in chapter 16 are really about. So let's turn there because it brings us to the second Sabbath principle, the need for regular rest. The need for regular rest. And that's verses one through 17. It covers the three great feasts of Israel. There's a bunch of other minor feasts, but these are kind of the three big ones. I'm just gonna read the last two verses there, verses 16 and 17. It says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Now, the idea of celebration plays a prominent role in the worship life of the Hebrew people. The people owed more to God than any of them realize. And he knows it's going to be harmful to them if his mighty axe, his outstretched arm on their behalf, was allowed to uh, slip away from their memories. And yet the pressure of life for them just as it is for us is such that all too easily we can forget what the Lord has done for us. And without intending to do so, we gradually get Uh, preoccupied with material things, and over time we become ungrateful and selfish and loveless. And that still happens to lots of people. When people have plenty, they care little about God. It's when unexpected disaster sweeps down on them, they begin to think about all those things that money can't buy. And throughout Deuteronomy, we constantly hear the plea that the nation would remember what the Lord has done for them it is necessary to keep the nation aware of this debt they have to the Lord, to remind the people of their responsibilities that they have towards one another. And yet, without a specific occasion in the calendar, these things just get forgotten. So the Lord commands his people to hold three great festivals or feasts each year. And they're specifically designed to keep the blessings of creation and redemption at the forefront of their minds and of their thinking. The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as Passover. Second is the Feast of Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost. And then the third is the Feast of Booths, which is also known as Tabernacles. And each of these festivals is gonna be held at the place which the Lord your God will choose. So, he's not coming to you, you're going to him. For this festival and it brings the people together from all the different tribes and all the different parts of the country and that itself is no small blessing because um you know they couldn't easily get as we came today from one place to the other and so you know when you're isolated you can become indifferent to other people and primarily these festivals are times of worship but they're also times of rest and times of recreation and they're called Uh, in the scripture, holy days, where we get our word holiday. And they also are sort of a public expression of the unity of God's people. Now, these feasts provide God's people with special days set apart for spiritual, physical, corporate renewal. And These festivals help the people remember three things. First, the Passover helps them remember God's saving deliverance. Everything at this festival is designed to recall the exodus, the month of their redemption, the offering of the Passover lamb, the food that was eaten, bread without yeast, the time of the sacrifice. And we know Jesus kept the Passover before he was crucified, and since that time, Christians have made the celebration of the Lord's Supper, our great Passover celebration. We recall a greater deliverance than the exodus. And when Christ became our Passover lamb, he was sacrificed for our salvation. Second, the Feast of Weeks helps them remember God's abundant generosity. Feast of Weeks, it was later known as Pentecost because it takes place 50 days after the Sabbath, which begins Passover. It's basically the period between the start of the barley harvest and the end of the wheat harvest. And this feast recalls not only their deliverance from Egypt, but its emphasis on the produce of the land draws attention to the Lord's goodness to his people. He not only rescued them and delivered them, he has cared for them ever since. And then the Feast of Booths helps them remember God's continuing faithfulness. Feast of also known as tabernacles, takes place each year after the harvest is all over. It's similar to our thanksgiving. It's a time for general rejoicing. Festival is a special reminder of the Lord's continuing faithfulness to his covenant people. Other accounts in the Old Testament link it with the years when the Israelites were pilgrims traveling through the wilderness. They recall the experience of those years when they had to live in tents They recall their utter dependence on God, and so they make these tents called booths um, in which they now live for a whole week to remember how the Lord had cared for them when they were wandering in the wilderness. If God hadn't continued his faithfulness to them through that long pilgrimage, they would have perished in the desert. Now today, lots of Christians like to give thanks to God every time we sit down for a meal. This grace or thanksgiving prayer need never degenerate into a religious formality. It's easy for that to happen for any of us. But we ought to think in those moments, not only of what we have received, but the food that others consistently lack. The Feast of Booths was a great time of sharing with the needy. The text said, do not appear before the Lord empty-handed. This wasn't talking about the sacrifice that you would bring. This was talking about the gifts you would bring to help other people. And so this would include not just the poor in our community, but any group of immigrants or refugees. We ought to pray intelligently, provide regular financial support for those who suffer from hunger, from loss of their home, being forced to leave their country. And with the Afghan refugees now and with the Ukrainian refugees that are sure to come, this is a pretty easy application. We, too, need to remember God's saving deliverance. We, too, need to remember God's abundant generosity. And we, too, need to remember God's continuing faithfulness. How do we do that? Well, now we're going to jump to the New Testament to see how we do that. We're going to jump to a verse that many of you have gotten familiar with yeah, because our community groups are using a book based on this verse, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, and the gift of rest. Not surprisingly, Jesus chose the word rest to describe salvation. Gathering up biblical concepts that encompass uh, Sabbath and salvation, Jesus gave his, what's really a gospel invitation, come to me, and I will give you rest. Now, it's interesting. In the Aramaic version of the New Testament, it says, and you will find Sabbath for your souls. Rest encompasses both creation's purpose and salvation's goal. This is an invitation to step into a life led by Jesus in which he promises rest for weary and burdened souls. And it seems simple enough. But the problem is we don't often accept this rest. Some of us do that worse than others. If you remember, the prophet Jeremiah paints this picture. Back in Jeremiah 6, he said, this is the verse that uh, Jesus quoted part of it. He says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. God liberated his people from slavery. And in Deuteronomy, God ties the Sabbath to freedom from slavery. Now the reality is in our day and age, people who overwork, like me, are really a slave. Anyone who cannot rest from work is a slave. Now, it may be a slave to the need for success, to a materialistic culture, to exploitive uh, employers, to parental expectations, or all of the above. But all of these slave masters will wear you out if you're not disciplined in the practice of Sabbath rest. Sabbath is a declaration of freedom. It's about more than the external rest from the body. It's about inner rest for the soul. We need rest from the anxiety and strain of our overwork, which is often just an attempt to justify ourselves, to gain the money, the status, the reputation that we think we have to have. Avoiding overwork requires a deep rest in Christ's finished work on the cross for your salvation. Only then can we walk away from overwork and find rest for our souls. Sabbath rest is the key to getting that balance. And Jesus identifies himself as the Lord of the Sabbath back in Mark 2. He is the Lord of rest. He urges us, look at these verses that hopefully you now know well, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of the great blessings of the gospel is that Jesus gives you the rest that no one else will. And not only does he give us rest, he promises it. Let's jump now to Hebrews chapter four. Actually, all of Hebrews 3 and 4 is about this, but we're only going to look at a few verses, Hebrews 4, verses 8 through 11, and the promise of rest, the promise of rest. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The author of Hebrews found different ways of describing the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first half of the book of Hebrews is basically, Jesus is better than, lists a bunch of things. If you remember when we went through the book of Hebrews, that was the theme for the book, Jesus is better. And one of them is Jesus gives the rest that neither Moses nor Joshua could provide. Under Moses, the people were disobedient and they failed to enter God's rest. And Joshua couldn't have given the people rest since God speaks about the rest he's going to give on another day. We see that verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And speaking of rest, Hebrews always uses the same word for rest. And now, in verse 9, speaking about rest that remains for the people of God, Hebrews uses a different word. And it's only used here one time in the New Testament. And it specifically means a Sabbath rest. And in this context, it fundamentally refers to the Sabbath rest found in Christ. That's why we're told in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. If we went back to the beginning of uh, Hebrews 4, we would read, for the gospel came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. We enter that rest, present tense. Believing the gospel brings you into that rest. For Christians, the Sabbath is a sign of redemption. It depicts the eternal rest we've received from Jesus in salvation. And just as it was a reminder to Israel in the Old Testament, it's a reminder to the New Testament church, both of our, um, of our identity as blood-bought sinners and of God's promise of eternal rest in Him. And as sinners, we're prone to forget those truths, and therefore, As a means of grace, God gave us the Sabbath so that we won't forget the Gospel. We see this day also points us to that ultimate eternal rest in heaven, the glorious rest that awaits those who are trusting in Christ. And therefore, just like one aspect of the Lord's Supper, this day is pointing forward. It reminds us there's going to be eternal rest in heaven. Christians celebrate the Passover feast at the Lord's Supper because of the redeeming work of Christ and the fact that he continues to provide his grace for us, not only for us to live and thrive, but also for us to rest and worship. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And that same Christ, our Passover lamb, tells us, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He is the only boss who will not drive you into the ground. He is the only audience that does not need your best performance in order to be satisfied. Why? Because his work for you is finished. That's why when you join the church, the second membership vow says, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and you receive and rest in him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. Therefore, as the Lord's Supper Christians, we come to the Lord's Supper to remember his work for us, to rejoice in our salvation, And we come to find rest for our souls. But before you come, think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, Thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to come to you. We still think we have to prove ourselves. We have to earn your love. We have to do more and do better. And we have become busy and tired, weary and burdened. And all the while you're asking us to come. And find rest for our souls so by your grace by the power of the Holy Spirit we ask that you would enable us to come enable us to remember enable us to rejoice and enable us to rest grant that we may live like people who love you so we may receive your promised blessings and work in each of our hearts this year as we learn to trust you and your word and through the book of Deuteronomy draw us ever closer to the one who became the Passover lamb for us that we might find our rest in him, your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.